Hello, this is Robert Bathurst with the final podcast in our series celebrating the 900th anniversary of Leeds Castle. It's an episode dedicated to the remarkable last private owner of the castle, Olive Lady Bailey, and the sophisticated 20th century style she brought to what's been called the loveliest castle in the world. If you haven't heard of Lady Bailey, that's hardly surprising, because she studiously avoided public attention. But you will have heard of the many film stars, writers and politicians who gathered here as her weekend guests. But before we come to her, I'd better quickly explain what happened to Leeds Castle since we left it at the end of episode four, in its Tudor heyday as one of Henry VIII's favourite homes. Following Henry's death in 1547, his son by Jane Seymour, Edward VI, in his brief reign, granted it to one of his trusted advisers. Leeds had been a royal castle for 274 years. It would never be won again. What that meant for the castle was that from then on its fortunes would always fluctuate with the fortunes of its owners, many of whom shared a remarkable talent for spending, invariably followed by bankruptcy. None more so, perhaps, than Fines Wickham Martin, who, having inherited Leeds Castle in 1821, spent so much on it that he had to flee the country six years later to dodge debtors' prison, but not before he'd saved Eleanor of Castile's Gloriette from collapsing into the moat and rebuilt the new castle as we see it today. So we owe him a great debt. Unfortunately for him, he owed some great debts of his own. By marrying into wealth, Fiennes' son managed to pay off the creditors just in time and save Leeds Castle for the family into the next century, until the inheritance taxman dealt the final blow. In 1925, the last of the Leeds Castle Wickham Martins decided to solve the problem by selling up. Which is where Olive Lady Bailey enters the Leeds Castle story. She's 26, with two daughters from her first marriage and a second husband in tow. I think it's fair to say she dominated her husband's, not least because she had all the money. She wasn't yet Lady Bailey, that would come with her third marriage, but she did come armed with a serious fortune from her grandfather, who'd been big in US tramways and shipping. Olive's father was an Englishman, an extraordinary one whose life might make another podcast. So although Olive had been born in the States and raised in France, she always felt English, and now she wanted her own English stately home. At £180,000, around £10 million today, and with 3,000 acres, it possibly looked like a bargain to her. But there was a lot to do to bring it up to American standards of comfort. The Wickham Martins had obviously learned their lesson from Fiennes' costly improvements in the 1820s, and they'd hardly spent a penny on the place ever since. Conditions inside the castle had become so uncomfortable that the last Wickham Martins never moved in. But Olive wanted to do more than simply make the castle habitable. She'd developed a sophisticated design aesthetic during her formative years in Paris, and she meant to bring this style to Leeds. To do this, she engaged one of the leading figures in the Parisian Art Deco movement, Armand Albert Rateau. So it's now time to introduce my first expert guest, Annie Kimkaran-Smith, who's head curator at Leeds Castle. Annie recently supervised a major programme here to restore the interiors that Olive created, first with Ratto and then with the equally remarkable Stéphane Boudin. Thank you for joining me again, Annie. It's a real pleasure, Robert. So let's start with Ratto. Who was he and what did Olive commission him to do at Leeds Castle? 
Well, it was really an extraordinary coup to get Rateau to Leeds Castle because everyone wanted him, maybe not in Britain, but certainly in New York and the cultural capitals of Europe. I think what excited Rateau about Leeds Castle, apart from Olive's obvious appreciation of his talent, was that this was a very different kind of project for him. It wasn't just a decorative commission. He was being asked to introduce some standout architectural elements that Olive felt were missing. So in Fines Wick and Martin's 1822 Newcastle, which looked Tudor on the outside but quite bland inside... He reclaims a whole set of Jacobean panelling from a condemned mansion in Peterborough and refits it into one of the drawing rooms, lowering the ceiling to meet the panelling so it looks like it's been here forever. Ah. And I recently discovered that he designed the spiral staircase in the Newcastle too, which looks every bit as old as that 16th century Breton staircase in the British Museum. I imagine, Annie, that most of your visitors are, like me, amazed to discover that it's a 20th century creation as is the Tudor-style elevation into the Gloriette Courtyard. How do they feel about this when they find out? I think people are really rather surprised, Robert, and I hope they feel, as I do, quite privileged to understand the extraordinary vision and skill that was behind these achievements. That's part of the magic of Leeds Castle. There's plenty here that is real medieval stuff, but then there's Rateau's vision of what the medieval was in his world. And it's great fun to identify his moments of genius and insistence on brilliant craftsmanship and inspecting it close up. So, in remarkably little time, Ratto has worked his magic and Owen Little, Olive's day-to-day architect, has done all the other essential work to make Leeds Castle thoroughly habitable. Outside, a lot of work's been going on too, to landscape and replant the gardens, create a tennis court and pavilion, a golf course and clubhouse and a swimming pool, complete with one of the world's first wave machines. Olive even had llamas and zebras brought here to decorate the scene. It's the perfect weekend package for her celebrity guests to come and enjoy. And it's the perfect moment to introduce my second expert guest, the historian Adrian Tinniswood, whose recent book, The Long Weekend, Life in the English Country House Between the Wars, captures the spirit of the age. Adrian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to, good to be talking to you, Robert. Now, Adrian, I've got a list of some of Olive's guests here. Um, we've got Charlie Chaplin, Robert Taylor, Errol Flynn, Mary Pickford, Noel Carr, David Niven, Jimmy Stewart, both Douglas Fairbankses, uh, mostly movie stars and mostly men, it seems. Um, you know, didn't she invite women? Isn't that a list there, Robert? It's like, it's like a Hollywood studio. But you're right, we do seem to know more about the, the men who stay here than the women. I think it's safe to assume that there were plenty of glamorous women here as well, though, because it's not long before Leeds Castle starts to get itself talked about as a, a den of iniquity. There are reports of depravity appearing in the popular press, and eventually Olive draws a veil over the castle and the guests, and she kind of she hides away. After she marries for a third time to the diplomat Sir Adrian Bailey, and she becomes Lady Bailey, Bailey, as of course we know her now, her guest lists become rather more heavyweight. Her new husband, Sir Adrian, has got some serious political connections, and they soon discover that Leeds Castle is the perfect place to come and unwind in complete seclusion. At some point, she even entertains Edward VIII and Mrs Simpson. Thank you, Adrian. Um, but Annie, uh, the castle isn't still quite complete in her mind, is it? Um, which is why, around the late 1930s, she engages a younger French interior designer, Stéphane Boudin, who is making a name for himself at the Maison Janson design house in Paris, and who many years later redecorated the White House for Jackie Kennedy. 
I think that um, Lady Bailey felt that while Rateau had helped her create a beautifully appointed medieval to Jacobean home, she hadn't yet put her personal stamp on it. What she felt the castle needed now was some signature rooms, each very different from the other, as a counterpoint to the castle's homogenous historic look. So she and Boudin set out to demonstrate that you could put modern fabrics with 18th century tapestries and Chinese ceramics in a Jacobean room and somehow make it all work. He would be down here at weekends rearranging the furniture, rehanging pictures, trying out new fabrics, seeing what worked and what didn't. And I have to say, the staff used to dread what they called her Boudin weekends. Adrian, uh, I imagine it's quite rare to come across a suite of 1930s interior decoration schemes like what we have here at Leeds Castle and now beautifully restored to their original condition. So I don't think there's a series of rooms anywhere else in England that captures the spirit of that interwar period quite so perfectly. Rateau and Boudin were masters of their art. And although Lady Bailey did do a bit of ill-judged modernisation in the 1960s, she was an amazing record keeper. So Annie and her team have been able to find all the original designs and specifications and recreate them where possible. Hmm. Do you have a favourite room here? Uh, it's got to be the yellow drawing room of it. Um, that's where Boudin replaced the oak panelling with a yellow silk damask wall fabric with matching curtains, decorative palmet, all his own design. Over the years, though, these fabrics got badly worn, but Annie and the team found his original specs in, in Lady Bailey's archives. They found the original French weaver still in business, and they had them run the order again. It's amazing to see the newly restored room just as Lady Bailey presented it to her guests in the 1930s. Mm. And with the approach of the Second World War, Lady Bailey's guest lists shift from Hollywood to Westminster. Before the war, Anthony Eden, the Foreign Secretary, met the German ambassador here. During the war, Churchill himself was here, as was Montgomery, discussing contingency plans in the event of a German invasion. And for a while, the Battle of Britain was going on right above the castle, Planes, pilots and the occasional bomb dropped out of the skies into the neighbouring countryside. But remarkably, only one bomb fell on the grounds here, with just the single casualty, an unfortunate llama. And Lady Bailey was quick to make Leeds Castle useful to the war effort. It became a treatment centre for wounded RAF and German pilots, with an operating theatre on the first floor, and later a recuperation facility for the pioneering Mackindo Plastic Surgery Unit in East Grinstead with Lady Bailey performing some of the nursing duties herself. And after the war, Leeds Castle became a much quieter place. There were fewer weekend parties, although famous people continued to gather here, including JFK at one point. Her children had left home. Her third and final marriage was over. Collecting rare birds became her thing. Adrian, um, she's a mysterious lady. She sets out as a young woman to create the perfect stately home. She spends a fortune doing so. She invites all these famous people to come down, but then disappears, like Gatsby, into the background to watch a movie on her own. What do you think was her driving purpose? And did she achieve it? What, in the end, is Lady Bailey's legacy? Uh, do you know, Robert, I think that image of a female Gatsby is perfect. It captures her. There are so many different ways of seeing Olive Bailey. As the saviour of one of our historic castles, remember, a lot of great houses were being demolished between the wars. 
She's a great patron of the decorative arts with her own sophisticated tastes. She's a brilliant party planner, people mixer. She's a discreet hostess to important public figures. And during the war, she's a public-spirited citizen, ready to give her time and her home to the courts. But around here, you know, she's still remembered, even today, as a generous, thoughtful employer. There are still people who remember her fondly from when they were the children of the state workers. They, they remember the interest she took in their health and education. They remember the wonderful Christmas party she threw for them. And, of course, it's thanks to Lady Bailey that Leeds Castle is open to the public at all. Because before she died in 1974... She set up a charitable foundation to preserve it for public benefit. Annie, for you and all your colleagues who work here, what does Olive mean to you? I think that we certainly feel her presence here more than any of the other big personalities who lived here. The six queens of England who owned it, Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon and so on. This is her place. She, more than anyone else on that list, made it work as a happy home, as an exciting destination, as a great place to work and as part of the local community. That's why we went to all that trouble to restore those interiors to their original appearance. We want to keep her spirit alive and keep the castle alive in ways we think she would have approved of, like the work we're currently doing to make her wood garden even more spectacular. And yet it was before Olive arrived there that Lord Conway made his famous remark about Leeds Castle, that it was the loveliest castle in the world. That was in 1913, as I say, before she arrived. He did, but he only saw it from the outside, and it became lovelier still after she, Ratto and Boudin transformed it inside. And I urge all our listeners to come and experience what they created here, if they haven't done so already. We are open 364 days a year. Annie and Adrian, uh, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We've now come to the end of our inaugural series of podcasts. If you have time, please rate or review it and tell your friends. We'd love to know who's been listening and what you've thought of these programmes. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>